Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Tonight I'm going to be talking to Kieran Gillen, who writes comics. And the reason I'm talking to him is because I felt a little bit bad that we've kind of neglected the men. Now, we started Breaking the Glass Slipper to talk about the issues around uh, female representation in science fiction, fantasy and horror. But there are plenty of male creators out there writing female characters and who have legitimate opinions on the subject matter, which is why I wanted to talk to Kieran. So, Kieran, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello. The word legitimate opinions always makes me kind of like shudder as if I'm about to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Kieran Gillen. I'm a, primarily a comic writer. I have written in the American mainstream for like slightly over a decade now. Uh, I've worked for like Marvel, where I've done books like Uncanny X-Men and Iron Man and Darth Vader and Young Avengers and, and frankly far too many other ones. And I've worked for Avatar and other places. I'm probably like relevantly best known for my work at Image, which includes a book called Phonogram, uh, which is about music and magic, and the book The Wicked and the Divine, which is about like primarily young people as gods. Um, and that's kind of a broad overview of what I kind of do. And I have to admit, I'm a big fan of The Wicked and the Vine, so this is why I particularly wanted to talk to Kieran, because, you know, a bit of fangirling action right here. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk to you about like the industry and working within the comic industry and, you know, how you find that as a creator in terms of, you know, the, the representation of creators, you know, do they, how many women do you see working in there? Is there, is it problematic for them to try and get their voices heard amongst all the men? I mean, areas of the industry, it's still bad. You know what I mean? As in, like, there's some areas where it's predominantly, um, in fact, you know, much more diverse. You know what I mean? There's, like, the, sort of it's the webcomics community, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's a big yeah. thing. You're talking about, like, Marvel and DC. I mean, there's a site called Bleeding Call that does, like, a monthly breakdown of the gender break, you know, and there's never more than 20% women creators, you know, and that's slightly skewed by, I think, the assistant editors or the editorial staff tend to be more women. So that kind of gives them a slight bump. And in actual fact, it's much nearer 10%. Um, and that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't really dance around that. Um, and, you know, that, that's the same with against most metrics of diversity. You know, it, it is very white, it's very male, and often very straight. Um, in terms of, like, and that kind of, like, creates a bunch of problems. I mean, it's like the, one of the things that kind of, has I would say if you look across the last three last five years of comics, like about five years to about three years ago, the kind of um main dialogue was we need more diverse characters, you know? Uh, this, especially the I always describe the Marvel and DC a bit like, you know, DC had to make their universe in the thirties, Marvel made theirs in the sixties, mm-hmm. and those characters are important roles. And they're never really gonna quote unquote retire. You know what I mean? Like, you can't go to the DC and say, I want to make a new character, and then the, the paragon of all goodness, and everyone, you know, basically looks up to them as the kind of what, you know, what goodness is, and the most powerful person. And they can't make that character, because that character's job is Superman, you know? Mm-hmm. And I describe it like baby boomers. You know, these people have got their position, and they're going to retire, and they're sucking up all the money. And there's, there's a, you know, <laughs> yep. if you're, you're going to create something in one of the two main, like, superhero universes, you have to look for a niche which isn't being filled, which is kind of a challenge. Um, but also, you know, but that's, you know, Marvel and DC, to their credit, do are in the process of trying that. Anyway, so that was like five years ago. Um, and then kind of like people started doing that, especially indie books in the mainstream. And um, and then rapidly the conversation changed, and rightly so, to, well, wait a sec, wait a sec, it's not enough for the characters to have more diversity. We need more diversity in creators too, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, 
and Jamie, who's like the artist of Wicked, we're very aware that that was sort of coming anyway. But it's one of those interesting things that how the conversation changes because the thing about progressiveness, you know, it's not a goal. There's not a goal to it. You know, it's like uh, the actual standards change, and that's kind of the point of it. Um, the Sona Boys, I've said it, and okay, current problem, which I find really interesting, and in that kind of there's two demands on new books, and one of them is like if you've got a new book uh, with a woman character in. For example, it's like quite, there's quite a lot of a call for coming up an authentic writer on it. The the question of authenticity is very important, I think, at the moment in terms of comics, like the critical audience at least, if not general audience. Um, at the in other words, people try to launch books with you know women writers on women characters, and the problem being is other people are saying, why the hell are we having women characters on you know women writers on women characters because they should be writing like the big characters because that's better for their career and it's also better because they're not being kept in this kind of like ghetto, you know what I mean? Yeah, and also I would and, say that yeah. you know there's no reason why a woman couldn't write a man just like a man can write a female character. It's yes, absolutely. It's boxing them is, in. And this is kind of like uh, and the, the problem as such is in terms of the talent the companies are hiring, um they haven't quite they don't the companies don't think they have enough talent to do both, you know what I mean? So they're kind of like trying to fill one or the other. Of course the question then is what do you mean by the talent they're hiring? Who aren't they hiring? Um, and yeah, and these are all rig and open questions. I will put the, the, my kind of more optimistic spin on this. I said this on, um, me and Jamie did a book for Marvel called Young Avengers, which was like we did in 2013 for a year. And it was basically, um, like a majority queer super team. We only really revealed that at the end because we didn't want to be a press release, but it was very, you know, it's a diverse book and it was very explicitly about the, you know, about just not the idea of, okay, let's do a, a Marvel universe that it might imagine what it would look like if we started in 2013. And uh, we launched Wikdiv, like, or we announced Wikdiv, like, three days after it ended in San Francisco. And it was at the Image Expo. And the Image Expo is, like, predominantly for retailers and, like, really, like, announcements. Like, it's like a Mac Expo thing. So it's not really like <laughs> okay. Comic-Con. So the people who go there are really, like, hardcore. We're into comics as industry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and when we and we were surprise signing, so we came out of nowhere because we were, like, a secret guest. Um and the queue there was as diverse as you could wish for an audience in comics in terms of race, in terms of sexuality, in terms of like gender. You know, it was a kind of portrait. And the people who are willing to go to a con like that are the people who will be creators in a few more years' time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we can talk about like systemic problems of that not happening, which I agree is big and huge. But um, we're better than we were five years ago. And I honestly think in five years' time from now, the industry will be unrecognizable. You know what I mean? So I think with a lot of the kind of the conversations we have are about the slow transitional nature of the media, which it sounds like a, which is one of those awful things that I kind of recognise the enormous systemic problems going on at the same time thinking there are more opportunities of shit happening as well. So yeah, um, that's my basic take anyway. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, if you talk about some of the, you know, the problematic representations within the comics themselves, so moving away from the creators and the people involved in the industry, but you know, the comics themselves. Um, what are some of like the biggest problems you've seen or, you know, how things that you've identified that you really wish you'd stop seeing? Uh, well, people's G-strings for a start. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, I'd say, at the end, one of my favourite characters is Emma Frost. Okay, like, yeah. Like, I find it really interesting. And Emma Frost only works when only Emma Frost is dressing like Emma Frost. The point of Emma Frost is she is um, confrontational, you know what I mean? Yes. As in there, there's an aggression and, like... The, 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 you know, there's um, a glacial aggression about her choices. And if ever, all the other cats are equally dressed 
um, in a ludicrously over the top fashion. Uh, that effect isn't there. You know what I mean? So there's a baseline of like over sexualization of female characters. I mean, this is one of those classic idiot arguments on the internet, and in that you know men were men were objectified. You know, men are just as objectified as women. It's just not true. Women are objectified in comics on average in a very different way to um, how men are objectified. Men objectified as a thing of power. Uh, whilst women are objectified as a sexual object to look at, you know? And there's still too many artists who do that as a basic thing. And the, the flip of the Emma Frost thing is, yeah, you can have Emma Frost dressed like that as long as you do not treat her as an object. You know what I mean? Like if, if the character... And that means it doesn't matter how characters dress if the artist chooses to frame it as an ass shot. No, mm-hmm. uh, if you choose to actually frame a shot as a character, this is a problem about comics where we differ from prose and other places. It's a lot about the visual representation, which isn't just like what someone chooses to wear, because characters, of course, don't make choices. But it's also it's not just how you you dress a character; it's also how you choose to frame to dress the character. You know what I mean? And that kind of link stuff is kind of like that's the stuff I really nags at me because it's um it's like background sexist radiation. You know what I mean? Yes. And it's just kind of it's like it's stuff that you you. You get used to if you're in comics, and then anyone from outside comics who looks at the page goes, ugh. <laughs> or, you know, many do anyway. Yeah, I mean, the, the example I'm thinking of isn't technically comics especially, but um, the cover of the Avengers film, and where they've got Black Widow just, like, kind of bent over almost. And I saw a load of, like, photoshopped images online with basically doing that to Captain America or Thor and how ridiculous it looks. But yet we're so used to seeing the female characters in ridiculous positions like that, it doesn't even look abnormal anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's like... And there's so many of the tropes which just kind of normalise stuff. Like... I mean, even like the physiques, the kind of like athletic Amazonian physique, Jamie doesn't tend to draw over voluptuous characters. But like compared to like the street, Jamie, you know, <laughs> as it's like, I remember my aunt saying, why, you know, all the women have to be this busty. This one, okay, it's one sequence in Avengers, which was, you know, it was deliberately pushing it a bit because it's, uh, it was, uh, and it was a dimension full of like a gang of Uberlets who are hunting people in weird SMN, SMN with kind of Lovecraftian faces. So it's like that. But at the same time, it's kind of um, even Jamie stuff, which is like relatively like tame compared to some artists, still kind of registered to my aunt as, oh, that's a bit too much, you know? Um, so you kind of, you're, you're aware that your your rating system is skewed. <laughs> yes, you're so used to seeing the the really crazy out there ones, though, that when you pull it back, it's still not pulled yeah, back yeah. as much as ordinary life. You end up having to sort of like, you know, question your choices, really. And so, you know, I think so much of the, ba- I mean, the really basic stuff is just how you choose to frame characters. As I've said, like, um, you know, as in, do you see the character to be something to be looked at or is something to be empathised with? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems that I have with a lot of comics is that not even, you know, going to, to the point of the over-sexualisation of, of characters in their physical depiction, but just the fact that uh, when it comes to females, there's just so little, or well, even men, really, so little difference mm. in the physical design of characters. So, you know, they all tend to be on the thin side or, you know, if, if they're evil, you might have someone who's overly large, but there's just no kind of difference. They're all about average height. They're all kind of thin, you know, muscular. Mm. Where, where are the people who are a bit stockier or the really tall, lanky ones? Or the, you know, there's just not a lot of difference in... 
it's it just makes for a little bit yeah. of a boring landscape. I mean, you know, think Groove Armada. If everybody looked the same, we'd get tired of looking at each other. And then in comics, they just all look the same. <laughs> I can't believe it. It's like I, I, you were the person who quoted music first. It's normally me. So that's a, <laughs> you, you consider that a victory, Megan. Um, yes. Yeah, it, like there is, there is some artists have a problem with body types. And it, some of the weird things, of course, is this is a, like – this is actually a DC Marvel thing. There's more silhouettes in the Marvel universe because there were, when the DC universe was made, there was a kind of a standard heroic physique mm-hmm. and everyone had it. And when the Marvel universe was made, there was a bit more variation, but still there's kind of, there is, I mean, I hate, I hate the fact that this entire conversation with me banging on artists, which is entirely unfair to the oh, art. Yeah. <laughs> there's certainly not, I was about to say, I can definitely hear, I hear Declan Shavley, who is, um, is rightfully arguing for artists' rights on the internet at this moment, probably. It's just saying, Kieran, you just can't blame and, the, and it's true. You, we have to take the, the rights have to take some different blame on, which I'm sure I will get to shortly. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's weird because there's like, especially if you're working in the kind of heroic fantasy art, you're kind of like working in basically a kind of like David's, um, you know, the Statue of David. You know what I mean? That's yes. the kind of thinking. So all the men are paragons, and all the women or whatever a paragon means, as in you know whatever the dominant beauty standards are. And it's like a rare artist who really pushes physiques, and it's often like comedy artists. You know, artists who are kind of like funnier. Not all of them are necessarily mocking the different physiques. But the idea that um, the idea that uh, they're, they're more used to showing variety. Oh, this is almost devil's advocate. I don't really mean this, but um, I'm thinking about like I was reading like Aristotle again recently, mm-hmm. and he defined tragedy versus comedy. And tragedy is a story about people who are better than we are, and uh, and that's why it's tragic when they fail. And comedy is about people who are worse than we are, and that kind of and the, the idea that people, if it's about to be superheroes, people try to draw these more standardised physiques. And that's why, you know, that's one reason why they try to go this paragon mode, the idea that these people are above us. And there's all sorts of weird, like, semi-eugenics fascist stuff buried in there, you know what I mean? Superheroes are weird, is what I'm saying. Like, the more you think, <laughs> yeah, in short. But, of course, you know, we had this in Wicked, as in, like, we're trying to, you know, when we're making Wicked, we're explicitly thinking about, we wanted to make the opposite of what I was just talking about, the idea, okay, we're going to make a, a fantasy universe in 2014. We want to make it look like 2014. You know, cinemas, the cast of Wicked is about as diverse as London is. Yes. Um, same time, since we were kind of like basing on pop stars, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of, you know, that was our main inspiration visually. We're going to make it feel like pop stars. But I'd cast most of the people in the group before I realized that, wait, 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 uh, there's not enough body diversity. Mm. As in like, I think there's no one over a size eight, that kind of vibe. You know what I mean? As in, so that, And, you know, I, I, after that point, we worked in a bit more afterwards. And it was like, kind of, okay, like uh, Tara, Tara is like, for example, really tall. She had to be, uh, part of the story involved her being, like, um, dealing with the, her kind of looks. But at the same time, she's, like, almost inhumanly tall. And then kind of, uh, I end up, like, adding a norn. As in, one of the norns in the book is um, a considerably heavier woman. I mean, there was, but the thing is, there was all, after, after you started thinking about that, for example, there's a character called the Morrigan. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, the Morrigan could be, like, in her archetype, as in the, the pop style she's based on, certainly includes some people are more heavier. But the problem being, the Morrigan does not appear to be entirely stable you know in the early comics you may think she's actually just insane in which case the only insane person you know quote unquote in the book is this um is a larger person that's playing into a completely different set of stereotypes yes. so we couldn't do that either and we kind of we do this is kind of this is obviously probably stuff we're going to talk about later but sort of balancing okay this would be good oh, oh no that's the problem and then kind of going through that kind of series of what's the best way to do as much as you can without accidentally like stepping on settled landmines and that's kind of, you know, uh, what basically writing is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what 
just picking up on that, have you ever sort of been called out on any of your representations of, of women or men or different um, you know, races, sexual yeah. orientations? I mean, it's like, it's tricky, especially like in comics, everything is going to be called out by something. And this is, to us, this is one situation, anybody who's coming with, um, anyone actually comes to me and asks me about something, I, I, I always try to engage, uh, especially if somebody's clearly upset by it, you know? Because that, you know, intent doesn't necessarily matter. Yes. You know, the intent is never to do that. I mean, if if intent was there to do that, what kind of monster am I? Uh, And I'm, you know, I'm a monster, but not that kind of monster. There's certainly times I've looked at stuff that has been said, and okay, I get that. And sometimes I think, no, I don't think it's fair entirely. But I can sort of, often I go, okay, from that information and that information, I see why you've got that. And of course, you can't change what you've done, but you can Mm -hmm. just bear it in mind in the future. Taking what you can from it is a trick, I think. And some of it is I just like, the fandom is capable of metabolizing people's opinions as well. You know what I mean? In terms mm-hmm. of like, if some person has a take on this, people go, actually, that's not fair because this isn't, you know, this didn't, this literally didn't happen in the comic. You know what I mean? Uh, and that, you know, interpretation doesn't necessarily always link to what is said, but at the same time, if people interpret it wrong and in good faith, that's the problem with what you've written. Uh, so the trick is essentially balancing all those frankly impossible situations. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think, I think even bringing out any, ex- I'm, I'm trying to think of one an example to use because i'm not sure if like highlighting an example is necessarily useful and what i mean um okay actually here's one like because that highlighting example i don't want to send anyone googling up for the person who said it you know what i mean i, I don't like drawing attention yeah. to my critics because you know in the current climate putting a essentially putting a target on one of your critics is a really fucking cruel and uh, cruel and dumb thing to do um <laughs> trust me i know all about that i review books and i'm i'm often quite uh blunt <laughs> mm. i mean like, I, I, I said i used to be a critic so i'm essentially always on the critic side um at least almost always on a critic side at least to say it i, I think criticism is art there was an in a book called angela this is going to involve some spoilers the story we did this is this involves some small spoilers uh but basically the whole story involves all this all the angels who are part of the who are all women uh, the warrior angels are all women were had been cursed to hell by a particularly angry Freyja, who's odin's wife in the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a really complicated backstory. <laughs> and they realize that um, the lead character, Angela's um, girlfriend, basically, Sarah, uh, the person who's being on the tra- on the track, the whole mission was actually someone pretending to be Sarah. And, uh, you know, all the mess, all the things were Sarah's messages, but Sarah was actually also in hell. Now, and that's, and it's all kind of heading towards a kind of traveling to hell to rescue her story. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the sort of setup. Now, the problem, of course, is we've all, Sarah is on the quiet. We made her a trans woman, you know, and it's, uh, there's a whole kind of history. So the idea of a trans woman being in hell was, of course, triggering, you know, and really like, upsetting for some trans people. And, of course, the story, our intent is that, you know, no, it's whole, you know, all women are in hell. She's, you know, and it's actually utterly unjust. And the story's about getting her, you know, this is wrong. And this, you know, the god that put them there is frankly like genus, you know, a monster for doing it. And this is meant to be a, this is meant to be a love story between these two women. And in fact, you know, it's a it's a classical, um, it's genuinely a classical love story. Now, all, despite all those kind of like, um, and the next story is very literally them going, you know, and they go to hell and rescue her, and you know, and they run off and live in New York. That's how the story goes. But like in a background of in a background of society where essentially the idea that you know especially religious trans women who are told that trans women trans people you know are going to go to hell, that was kind of like really really hard 
you know as in, and definitely some people took that as a kind of like the rest of the context didn't matter because we live in a society where a community has been hurt enough that hurt enough isn't even approaching that that issue was was too painful you know even if we're on their side and you know even if it's not actually about anything to do with her being trans you know it's just the idea of a trans woman being in hell that was too much because the rest of the society had hammered them too much you mm. know yeah um, and it's just, I, mean, I, I talked to several people and it's true. And it's like, and you know, a lot of people gave us a, a benefit of doubt. And it's certainly, I say this, this was really quite a minor thing. As in, I don't think, I think most trans people, it doesn't matter about most, you know, it's not like a major uproar or anything was about this. But the people I reached out, and there's, I mean, there's always one line which um, the main person I wrote to stuck with me. Uh, we're so used to seeing, we're so used to seeing marginalized characters uh, treating badly because of who they are, is that means that we, you know, it's very hard to identify a story where a character, a marginalized character is treated badly despite of who they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really, I mean, that, you know, I use that example because it's a really, it's a soft example as in different sorts of people completely have different kinds of take and I completely get why. And, you know, in that case, we were aware that we were aware that, that, you know, that was an issue we kind of, we were trying to write really hard around. Uh, but even then it still wasn't enough for some people. And, you know, that's a question of, you know, it was measuring between that and wanting to put um, these two women in the middle of a, a, a giant epic love story, which, you know, which is tra- tragedy and epic. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, there's like, I'm not sure though. We tried to walk that line. Does that, sorry, I've, given, I've gone far too much into this one example. <laughs> no, yeah. but it does make sense. But I mean, do you think that in, in terms, because obviously you going into that, you've had those reservations. You've tried to write in a, respectful way around issues you know can be triggering for people but I mean is that potentially what plays into part of this problem of the lack of representation because you know you have that issue of the creators and the writers you know being so heavily represented in terms of you know white male cis creators and then not wanting to upset people I mean do you think that might be playing into to the lack of representation I'm sorry I mean like Okay, in that situation, me, it's me and Mar- you know, Mar- me, you know, I'm not straight, and Marguerite, you know, also isn't straight. So it's a kind of like we're, um, so like we, it's like we're we're coming from a very a, a different place anyway for all of that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. But what you but what you're saying generally? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely kind of crazy. Oh no, I'm kind of crazy. We're scared off of trying it due to the cost of getting it wrong. And I don't. That's you know, on one level, I completely get it. Life is really kind of short. On the other hand. No, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly in the other column in that I'm like the way I generally do stuff. I, as in my cast, tend to be quite diverse, but you know, I don't think unusually diverse. I mean, Young Avengers is no more or less, you know, queer than my social group. You know, Wicked and Divine is London. It's just London. Yes. <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, I don't like being the, you know, the world does not need. A white, you know, a white cis dude doing a story about, a, you know, a transforming transition. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I avoid any. I like putting characters, diverse characters, whose identity impacts the story in the stories, as in a representation. You know, as you say, it's a representation thing. I don't like just doing the story because I think those stories are probably best left to more authentic voices. Not least because there's only going to be so many like stories of a certain type told. So if you're like somebody who isn't of a group takes that story and runs with it, it seems kind of greedy to me. But you know, it's, it's like it's almost it it's almost literally feels like stealing money from a from a group. I just thought of another uh, music metaphor there with a uh, you know Elvis stealing uh, 
black people's music. So, oh yeah, I mean, like it's, it it's is always, like that. What is your story? Is an important. I mean, that's kind of one of the questions I think a lot of creators are asking now. What is your story? And then what story is it okay to tell? And that is, and I'm not necessarily sure there's any right answer to that because I think the right answer shifts. I mean, my opinion will certainly shift in, in various key ways as I tell the stories I do. And I think, like, as a reader, you decide what is acceptable and what isn't. Okay, you know, like when we met uh, Dr. Afra, who's a Star Wars character we made up, who's like, um, she's like an, uh, an Asian woman in the Star Wars universe. And it's like, would it be better if an Asian creator made her up? Yeah, probably. But, you know, I'm the person in the position to do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's that kind of like, you, you know, you try to do what best you can. And you kind of also know that um, there is no perfect, and that's fine. You know, as in some people are always going to be angry at a creator of what you do. And this sounds like I'm sort of dismissing haters, but it's like kind of like... <laughs> oh, haters going to hate. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> actually, I take all criticism like completely thing, but, you know, I take all criticism in, but it's always question, okay, what line do you choose to walk as a creator? Like, where, what, what, what are the things you won't do? What's the things you will do? What actual change do you want to create in the world? Um, you know, what kind of stories do you want to tell? I mean, there's kind of like... I was thinking that Kate Leff, who is uh, an excellent writer, and, you know, she's not doing comics at the moment, she said, but she's mainly doing animation now. But she also set up a uh, retailer group for the Valkyries, which is a, a women-only uh, retailer group, which is like 500 people, I think, now. So it's a genuinely quite important endeavour. And she was just telling me a story about, like, are you aware of Miss Marvel? Yes. Which, of course, is an amazing book by G. Willow Ronson. Yes, it's uh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, Jamie designed the costume. Uh, I mentioned in passing. Um, so, like, Ooh. he does he does well. That boy, Jamie. <laughs> um, he and she's about like uh, like a Muslim girl coming into a shop and saying, I, "I'm told, you know, there's, you know, is there Miss Marvel?" And I hear this book, and and the, you know, the Valkyrie showing her to the, the um, oh yeah, they're over here, and she sees them. She can't even believe they exist. You know, and pretty much sits in the shop, sits down in the middle of the shop, and pretty much bursts into tears and starts reading them. And you know, the idea that um, to see yourself represented like that. Was such, I mean, that, that that's horrifying, you know, like I, you know, most white, you know, whether, you know, whether you're male or female, you see a lot of like white people in the, in the culture you consume, you know, the idea that to see something placed, put like that and, and framed entirely heroically, that's like heartbreaking, you know what I mean? I don't want to live in a world like where that's a big deal and it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. So yeah, well done her. <laughs> <laughs> that's an exact, you know what I mean? As in like, there's, and also there's an element that, you know, everything is transitional. In that kind of the, the work, Whip did was explicitly designed to do a work of a period, you know. And the next book, I'm, you know, I'm working on the next thing I'm doing, which is kind of going to hopefully be later this year. But I'm aware that what I'm going to do here is very different again. I'm stepping back from the sort of the Whip did area and doing something which is um, hitting some very different sort of notes. Hmm. I look forward to hearing more about that at some it's, point. <laughs> it's, it's basically set in a small Midlands town in like the, it comes from the early nineties. So if it was, the diversity is completely different. You know, the stat, it's something like where I grew up in Stafford, the diversity in that town is completely not only different to if you live in London in 2014 and it's that kind of like writing for the place. So, but me balancing how much I want to do uh, is also important there. But, you know, hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm from Perth and, in Perth, we have a lot of immigrants from Vietnam, Thailand, um, China, Singapore, you know, and so it's it's a very different makeup than, say, London. Mm. Very, very different. So, mm. yeah, I get that. Oh, no, no, sorry. sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, basically that. I just... <laughs> We've talked about, like, the problematic representations of women, but I do want to kind of talk to you as a man working in comics uh, about sort of the, some of the problematic masculine tropes. So, I mean, we touched on it a little bit earlier with the kind of that, um, you know, the physique of the male. 
But then there's also this kind of toxic masculinity piece where, you know, the men are kind of, it's all about strength and a show of force rather than showing kind of a more emotional side or uh, the intelligent side of the characters. It's hard because there's a lot of these kind of, um, I think also I've got a background in games criticism. And that, that, I mean, the advantage of men in fiction is that you get no that the fact man is the default in like the, our, our culture's fiction at least in most genres means mm. that men can be other things as well you know what i mean yes as in like, that a man is not being a man is not a character trait being a woman is a character trait uh is the way that uh, society tends to look at things and it's kind of like that's not really how i look at things but i'm very aware that, that that's kind of the default in fact that's kind of the one that, you know that's that's the great drive miss marvel she's not just right hello i'm a you know you know um, i'm a muslim woman girl living in um Jersey it's a very specific person you know what I mean <laughs> it's not just like an off the shelf random person and that's kind of like what is a character um, with men so in other words men I think men's toxic tropes are more often buried and harder to see than like the, the tropes according to women you know what I mean we talked a little about like in comics but then and I didn't earlier I didn't actually say any of the examples of like things which uh, writers do to women in comics you know that it's one of those kind of like there's very i can't think of any okay with one except maybe two but like someone's origin story basically being they were raped and they're out to get mm-hmm. through it. you never get that fuck you know there's not exactly many stories with men that happen that too um of course that's one of the that that's like when i was going to comics I had a few like simple rules i had and one of them was no i would never do you know i would never write a character that did that because it was just one of those clearly, oh, this is just so clearly wrong. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, I, I don't need to say this to you, but it just really obviously is wrong. But, you know, you don't get as many, you don't get anything that, not, you know, or like, or the refrigerator, you don't get fridging as much. You know, and of course, fridging is partially society's misogyny and partially, and to be honest, I think probably primarily the fact that, that most books tend to be led by men means that more supporting cast are women and supporting cast live to die. You know, <laughs> um, it's like, and that means to, that doubles down the accidental misogyny just by sheer math. Uh, not accident, you know, there's deliberate misogyny and there's also the kind of the mathematical story hackdom. And I use hackdom and unload it. It's not a word I like. Um, so, you know, that kind of stuff is much more obvious. I must admit, it's weird because I kind of like, I, a lot of my work tends to be unpacking masculinity. I mean, this is something I don't think people talk about much, but like in Wicked, Baal and Bathman are explicitly kind of uh, about masculinity, you know, about, mm-hmm. uh, and they take like, uh, Baal has internalized, you know, Baal, Baal has internalized, of course, a lot of the good things, quote unquote, about masculinity. You know, he kind of sees many things about being a man. And that, but it also, it also means he takes on too much on himself, you know, and lots of other things which are really genuinely awful for him. And Baphomet is performing. Baphomet really isn't good enough to do that. Baphomet is all about the performance, and he's like, and then he, then he just snaps a lot. He just can't live up to this role. He, it's just not him. I mean, I did a lot, and I kind of, I found doing that. I did a story on Canny X Men. This might be an example, but um, <laughs> this is cruel. Uh, I think you know the the, the classic uh, Fantastic Four story is, you know, Namor fancies Sue Storm. Sue Storm really does kind of like Namor, but she's married to Reed Richards. And like, and that's an interesting love triangle in, in many ways. And they kind of moved that over to the X-Men, which is kind of like with uh, White Queen, Namor, and Scott Summers, Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the kind of, and it, you know, it kind of ran in the same way. And when I got to it, it's one of those kind of, the one thing I don't think anyone's ever asked or written very well was the idea that why, why does Sue like Namor? You know, and the reason why Sue likes Namor is, or, or Emma likes Namor, Namor cares. As in, like, he's a dick. He's a really, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a monstrous ego. Yes, and he's beautiful, I mean, but he will, he would do anything for you and he would know it. And the idea, a natural fantasy of Reed Richards and Cyclops is the idea that, they are kind of geekish ideas of alpha males and Namor embodies the kind of, the, the, you know, the jock, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The fantasy they were selling to basically to people is the idea that the girl will stay with you rather than that, that other guy who's an asshole. <laughs> and that's the kind of, that's the internal sort of fantasy of that whole story. And I was trying to, you know, my unpacking of it was like, no, there's a, probably a lot of good reasons why Namor, you know, that Namor has many faults, but so do fucking you. You know, and that kind of like, and that kind of like that that fantasy, which was kind of built into that, I really liked unpacking. Does that, that that's like that an interest? I don't know. That's an example. Of it. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of like masculine power fantasies built into the superhero genre. You know, it's a genre. I, you know, I, I'll just beat the I'll beat the shit out of somebody. You know, and that's like that's just it. You know, the idea yeah. that I and I will and I'm strong enough that no one will be able to stop me. You know, and it's like this, the the power fantasy act. There's many many of I can literally hear people saying, Kieran, that's not all superhero genres are. It's true. You know, superhero is big, but there's there's that thread uh, of might makes right, which is always kind of distinctly uncomfortable. And that kind of that uncomfortableness is kind of almost the transgressive uncomfortableness at some level as part of the um, thrill of the genre in an awful way. In the same way, like reading a crime story is somehow voyeuristic. But I'm, no, so anyway, I've gone well off topic. <laughs> no, it's it's um, interesting, something that I've kind of noticed, or at least maybe it's a, a kind of a perceived constant, but it, it's about the female characters who do get given sort of superpowers. They're less direct superpowers. So, you know, you, you see a lot of, and not even necessarily superpowers, but just like the women characters who are good at fighting. You know, it's often either ranged weapons, so you have... Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of you know archers or things like that or you have people like emma frost and you know people who can use power of the mind people who can uh what is it that scarlet witch can do you know i don't know what she does throws all sorts of energy i don't know (laughs) um or then the other kind of would be people like um black widow who uses her strength but in you know she's often stealthy and comes up behind and kind of uses that to her advantage and the whole thing obviously as well yeah yeah and it's it's that a very different so you can say these female characters are there who have superpowers but they tend not to be as direct or in that same kind of just physical power and and Mm -hmm. that irritates me (laughs) i mean like it's it's kind of it's the um female characters tend to be healers in games you know it's that trope (laughs) You know, because it's the idea of what powers are feminine. You know what I mean? As in, like, I, I, you know, I agree entirely. Actually, I've got nothing to say apart from, yes, that's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one thing, it's like, you look at something, it's like, it's, if you're creating it, you know, if you're doing a character, it's like, okay, how can I make it interesting? I mean, it's one, Sue Storm's a really interesting example of a character who, in her early days, in the, those early Fantastic Fours, she was kind of like, literally the invisible woman. You know what I mean? Her powers not be there. It's kind of like, it's almost, that's almost like a feminist critique. But, you know, and across the years, they've kind of, right, generations of writers have tried to make Sue's powers more aggressive. 
you know, and trust, you can do some really, you know, if you apply your imagination to making false fields, you can do some really horrible things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a weird attempt to, attempting to retrofit a character's conception, which is based upon a, a, this this feminine-like stereotype of powers, I guess. But it's not, trust, it's not even helped much, I think, because the fact that many female characters were created secondarily, you know, like in, in a more, you know, in the, in the universe, like Superman or whatever, these, these characters are the, or the founding stones. And basically other characters get other power sets because we don't want to double up the power sets too much. So like, it's quite telling that one of the first, like Wonder Woman is, is as direct as anybody, you know, and Wonder Woman is all manner of interesting, like stuff buried in her as well. Yes. But she's got like basically Superman's power set. So it's like, so I think, as you say, it's partially, for me, it's partially like societal stereotyping of what women can quote unquote do. Uh, and it's partially like the weird niches of things. I mean, are you aware about uh, like black characters having lightning powers? Um, no, I'm afraid this that's... The, <laughs> this is the weirdest trope in comics. And it's like, I've, I've talked about this with creators. Um, and I've got a theory of why it is. And it's that kind of like, there's a lot of like black characters in superhero comics who can create lightning. And it's like, why? Why? I mean, like, and this all kind of starts in the 70s, I think, or late 60s. And I, my, my, my initial guess, is it some kind of awful black power pun? Is that it? And it's like, I don't think, and it's like, no, it's not, you know, because the people who made it, I don't think we're riffing on that. What I think it is, is that in the 70s, there were no, there weren't really characters who used lightning. You know, or there was less, you know, there was Shazam maybe. And, you know, so in other words, in terms of heroes getting to use like a distinctive visual that made them look cool, when they were starting to create black characters, they thought, okay, we can, this will make them, you know, this is something that de- defines them separately. And the fact they essentially came to the table quite late in being created meant that they got those kind of powers. And like, there's some of that, anytime you kind of add stuff to a universe that already exists, that's always there as well. But anyway, that's it. I generally, I would look to, this is something I've talked to like people who know much more about superhero comics than I do. I never <laughs> to that. And it's one of those kind of like, everyone just goes, huh? I mean, obviously we did it with like, you know, um, you know, we did it with Ball and we did it by accident, you know? <laughs> so like, what? So Ball and Wick yeah. is um, like a uh, Thunder God, basically. I mean, I was thinking about Kanye in the Power video. Uh, but, um, you were mentioning like revisionist kind of things with, with um, Sue, but I mean, there's things like uh, the female Thor and, you know, mm-hmm. like reimagining these characters who have been around forever. And this is, some, you know, certainly nothing new in terms of getting representation in there because obviously, you know, characters constantly die and are reborn and there's like a, you know four or five different p- characters who have been spider-man and you know all this kind of thing i mean what how do you feel about this kind of revisioning of classic characters to get in some of that representation i think it is a, a useful but temporary tactic you know what i mean as in it's like i think as in like these stories normally come to an end and they kind of end up like ten, tending to revert to the mean Mm-hmm. But they can be really useful for like, well, as you say, we're in a transitional period. So I think like doing stuff like that allows you to have interesting sto- have interesting stories, probably middle beginning, you know, middle beginning and end. But that's not the if that's the only thing you do, that's the where essentially the bigger problem comes. You know what I mean? As in, because you if you you want to be introducing other people to sort of like who have their own identity. I mean, this is kind of one of my problems with Young Avengers when I was taking over it. Young Avengers, uh, the kind of concept is all the characters are kind of like um, second generation Avengers, all who are somehow based on a previous adventure, Avenger. 
And my problem with that, you know, I have a problem with legacy heroes. I've got a weird, like, it feels very conservative to me. Like, the idea you would just re- recapitulate your parents' lives, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a bit that's a bit about my background as well. So this is clearly about my socialist chip on my shoulder. But um, a lot I was doing, me and Jamie were doing in Avengers, was trying to give all the characters their own kind of mythos, you know, as in give their own identities. So in other words, yes, they came from there, but now they are someone else. Like even like in China, you know, Scarlet, we we changed. Um, or we we hinted the character called Wiccan might end up being called the Demiurge. You know, Wiccan is clearly de- you know that's derived from Scarlet Witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the Demiurge that could be like yeah yeah I'm the Scarlet Witch's son, but I've got my own thing going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's the problem. The kind of like the 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 distaff here. Those characters are unlikely to stick forever, especially if you've got a character who is in a major Marvel movie. You know, mm-hmm. sort of. Was, I don't think it's. A, I mean, trust. Jason's forerun is astounding. It's a really good story, but eventually that story will end some way, I'm sure. And it's impo- entirely possible that the woman four goes up and becomes something else. And to be honest, that's also a good thing to do because the uh, the main advantage of doing it is if you're at the end of the story, you can kind of like elevate this character you've built up into their own thing and move them elsewhere. You know, that's a way of building an audience because people can like these characters. You know what I mean? But I think, you know, something like Miss Marvel is a better approach. You know what I mean? Or like, that's the that's the core approach. That's the kind of, or like Squirrel Girl. Or yes. Something, something, which is a delight. You know what I mean? As in like a cat, finding a place for a character with their own identity built from scratch. Basically, you, there's no reason not to do both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then you, you get into the whole, um, you know, the big studio kind of pieces versus things like Image Comics where you do the creator-owned as well, so... Oh yeah, I mean, it's complete, I mean, like when you create around, you do whatever you want. Yeah, you know, that, but it's like it's like that's the, me and Jamie making up a universe in 2014, and like, this is what I'm making up a new universe now. And the idea, you know, we don't need to. We've got the black sheet of paper, and we can draw whatever we think needs drawing. Uh, and that's obviously much more freeing. And that's kind of like that's what I mean. That's what you want. I mean, there is a joy to doing essentially cover versions of like really great pop hits. You know what I mean? That that's kind of like what work the hire is. You're like in a band, yeah. and you're basically jamming out. Okay. I'm a writer, you know, Jamie's an artist, you you know our stuff, this is how we would do Batman. And that's cool, because, you know, I'm interested in seeing how we do Batman or James Bond or anything. But, like, the way you really sort of change culture is essentially making new stuff. You just, you know, and that's kind of where you kind of get the most novelty, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> here's point where the- I play uh, devil's advocate, and then, you know, point it that, you know, Wick Div plays off, you know, lots of ideas from ancient mythology. And <laughs> so you're again using things from the past to, to create n- new stories. Uh, none of us are, you know, none of us are like Athena springing from Zeus's <laughs> you know. Um, but I think that's kind of the. I think the idea that I had a phrase. This is this is going to sound cruel. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> this is this is like me being my critic. I think the idea of originality and necessarily entailing like no precursors is desperately naive understanding of like uh, reality. You know, it's kind of like everything is caused by stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and we're all nothing but a, a big soup. I kind of often think it's like when I'm talking about like writers and artists, you get this period when you're just writing crap. You know what I mean? It, all you're doing is basically. Your influences. You're just a big yes. Yeah, I can see regurgitating you really, what you've seen. As I, I'm, I'm talking about myself. There's definitely. Oh yeah. <laughs> when I was coming into comics, I started like writing scripts, and you know, when I got into comics really late. But well, I just got in. I started writing stuff. And since I didn't, you know, since I never knew anything about comics, whatever I wrote that week was very clearly influenced by what comic I'd just read. 
It's like, and if you go back, it's like, oh yeah, this is the one where Kieran read Cerebus. Oh yeah, this is the one, you know, this is the one where Kieran had actually read Luther Arkwright and he's just ripping off the 12 panel grid, you know? Uh, and you reach a point as the creator when your influences metabolize. And it's normally about, you know what I mean? As in, you, yes, you are made by all of these things, but they have become something slightly different. And like, I can completely see all the stuff I've taken, but like, they are now so finely ground that people who come to me, you know, they often say, you know, that's quite an, you know, an original voice. I've had like, I don't like saying that about myself, but I remember having this conversation recently with a creator and she was saying to me, um, you know, from me and Jamie's first comic in 2006, it was like, who the hell is this guy? What the hell's it, you know, going on in his head? And I would have never thought, you know, and I look back at those comments saying, oh yeah, you had, you had some stuff going on here, Kieran. And you said, and that's, that is what I mean by originality. The idea of like something is entirely born of other things and of the moment. I mean, you know, Rick Div is all about cycles. You know, this is a story about every 90 years, God's come to earth. And you know, it's, it's the same thing every 90 years. Mm-hmm. However, every 90 years, the gods look completely different. You know, they're entirely born of the time they're in. Uh, so it's kind of, oh yeah, everything is repeats con- again and again and again. But everything's also different, always different. That's the kind of the, um, my basic take on novelty and art. Like, you know, there's been artists since people have been painting on walls and banging rocks together and like rolling bone dice. These are all artists that, you know, and they would be having the same conversations me and my friends have all the way like 10,000 BC. You know, nothing has changed. At the same time, everything's changed. Unrest. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, me. I was just like, I had no idea where that conversation was. I was just like talking. I have no idea where these words are going. <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, I, yeah, I, I love um, mythology. So actually that's what drew me to Wikdiv to try it in the first place. Cause I, um, I have a degree in philosophy and I was a massive Greek nerd for Greek philosophy and Greek myths. So that's my background. <laughs> it's, I mean, seriously, it's, that sounds awesome, eh? And the, I mean, yeah, <laughs> the idea of taking these kind of eternal forms, of, you know, and playing with them. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, I'll quote my Virgil or whatever. The idea that we are part, this kind of simultaneously, yes, we're part of a tradition, but we're kind of doing something for today. Um, and it's also kind of like semi-democratic idea that everything is open. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, what is it? Shakespeare, nothing Shakespeare did was original. He just took things from stories he'd heard and made them his own. All right, so let's uh, talk about if you've managed to think of any (laughs) favourite examples of great female characters or other marginalised voices that you've seen represented in comics. My brain is hurting. (laughs) Uh, It's funny, it's like, uh, I was only sort of thinking about, like, my own sort of journey into comics. And like, and I'm not, I'm, it's like, I, I found myself thinking like, uh, you read the, you, uh, Le Guin's Tomb of a Tomb? I haven't like, read that. No, but I've read a lot of Le Guin. The I'm probably mispronounced it. The second of the Earthsea novels. Oh, yes. No, I have. And it's like, I remember like, in terms, obviously I've noticed I'm doing books rather than comics to mm-hmm. give myself time to think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I remember like reading that as a kid and it was so, it got under my skin. You know what I mean? As in, like, because it is this Le Guin, you know, it's, it's you know, it's explicitly a sort of feminist story. Yes. Story, and it's about this girl who is fundamentally, basically, you know, she's the meant to be their messiah. You know, she's this, she's this enormously important religious figure, uh, but she's stuck in a crappy village. You know, and it's like her religion isn't that, you know, but at the same time, there's a real awful dark power beneath the uh, in the mazes beneath her, and it's so, you know, the idea, you know, like the Hobbit, the idea that fantasy is going somewhere. You know, as you go on a quest. Yes. And and the uh, tombs of a tomb was. Stay, this is about staying here, you know. As in, here's a, it's like the Gorman gas down the line, you know. This is a, a book about a place, and 
she like ten art. Well, she was an amazing character, you know. And I think as a kid, it's like kind of like I often rem- imagine what what I would be like as a writer if I never had those influences. You know what I mean? Like if I hadn't read like a book which present, you know, there were there were still like men of my age and men full stop who are uncomfortable with empathising with women. You know what I mean? As in they can't read a women character and like take that. And I, I found myself thinking about Star Wars recently. You know, when the Force Awakens happened, I think Ren may still save a generation of boys. You know, because I look at my kind of younger like step cousins, um, and it's like you know, yeah, they're all very excited about being Ray. You know, that kind of, um, and that's great. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like we talk a lot about representation by means of actually representation. You know, the idea of I want to see people like me in the media, which of yeah. course is incredibly powerful, important. But the flip of it is the uh, one of the great joys of fiction is that we get to empathise with people who are not like us. You know, this is kind of like more marginalised people have to do that all the time. <laughs> yes, they do, and, and like. It's, you know, it's not all you should be doing, but it's, it's something that is useful in all fiction. So you, the idea of think, looking at somebody and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, their life is not at all like me, but I get that. And that really get you know, it gets in your gut. That's really powerful. And that's kind of like, um, I said, that's, so if I didn't have the grin at that age, I wonder what it would be like. Um, <laughs> that's what, then I sort of think about like my teenage years. And this is kind of like the influence, like in terms of like pop stars. You know, so many of like the pop star music people I loved were. You I'm know, going were... to guess, or maybe it's Jamie, but Prince, because uh, <laughs> Prince I see was... that in Wick Div. <laughs> Prince was, a, I mean, sorry, Prince was actually mainly Jamie's. Okay. But you know, you take away someone like PJ Harvey or Bjork or like Robin later. I mean, I was just tweeting earlier about Polystyrene, who was like the singer of X-ray Specs from the 70s. But what I found, you know, like, um, uh, you know, I think as a pop star, she would be radical like today, let alone in 1977. You know what I mean? Or like when I go back and just go mm. Nina Simone or whoever. These kind of like the idea of actually having these kind of musical influences um, that you choose to inhabit, you know, will, will mean the world to me. And that kind of changes the way you approach fiction in that way, I think. Um, oh, God. Uh, so my first, <laughs> so I'll, I'll do a couple. Because uh, I don't want to. Do, the problem is everyone's my friend now, and it's like if I say like you know Kelly Sue, you know I've known Kelly Sue since the early West days. Bitch Blank is a scream of a book, you know what I mean? Uh, like Margaret Bennett, who's a friend of mine, I co-wrote Angela with, and her doing Animosity, you know, and the um, and the, the which is which is a really interesting book about the girl and a, and a you know a, a sort of sentient dog in a world like gone mad. Um, Jessica Abel, who's a was my Jessica Abel is someone I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but um, she was no like nepotism my... here. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, uh, and she did a series of like she's just stuff now. She's just been nominated for another Eisner. But I got into her Art Babe comics, which I heard doing just like uh, literary school, literary style like comics like that. I mean, I think in my early days when I was getting to comics, and I suppose I've met her. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I met her a few times, but I, don't, I doubt she'd ever remember who I am. Um, Carla Speed McNeil, do you know her? No. She's an artist writer. She does a book called Finder. Uh, Finder is basically a kind of like uh, soft science fiction book that's mainly about the social sciences. Um, but it's set in a kind of quasi, uh, it look, it's a sort of science fiction that looks like fantasy, except when you realise it isn't fantasy because it's all too well thought out. And she does these kind of series of like graphic novels. Uh, that's probably the best way to describe them, set in um, this, the book called Finder. Uh, and she is wonderful. And she's like, I can't describe how much uh, I love it, um, and it's it's it's, it's such a group cast thing, uh, and the lead character is male, so he's he's entirely irrelevant for the character question. But she <laughs> is somebody you you just can't get enough of. Also, but I did I met her a few times. She once took a wasp out my ear. 
like <laughs> at one of my first comic conventions it was like really it's like a 20 person comic con and a tiny wasp flew into my ear and no one believed me and then um uh, anthony stott johnson who's another comic writer, looked at me, no kieran has got a wasp in his ear and she, uh, carlos being with me i've got a tiny pair of tweezers took the wasp out of my ear and i will for you know even if i didn't like her work as much as i do um i would you know say She's very nice. yeah she's a hero you, you can't argue with that I'm saying something nice about Noel Stevenson um, because she's just very, oh, very nice. I, and I love moment, her stuff, wonderful. so, yeah. yeah, yeah annoy- it's like an annoyingly precise viewpoint. Uh, <laughs> and again, I mean, for for me, Lumberjanes and Nimona are great examples of having women of different physical shapes represented in comics. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like there's there's all of that. I mean, that's Nimona and um, I should say especially Lumberjanes. But pneumonia in terms of body shape is wonderful. And, you know, it's also like such a – this is one of the things when we're talking about we, – I sort of created a, a false dichotomy earlier in the conversation about genre and the idea that, that genre leads to certain physical body types. And it, and it does if you only think of two genres. <laughs> and then there's a certain, like, warmer form of, like um, – you know, there's a certain form of, like, warmer adventure fiction that completely can like leans into that and you have best of both worlds. And there's also actually – if you flip it again, there's a, there's a certain form of crime fiction that leans into grotesquerie. And the idea, then you have a lot of like, if you've ever read something like 100 Bullets, I've completely forgotten the name of the artist on it, but he's like um, really interested in drawing all different kinds of body types. Uh, and it's almost like, but his is a world kind of, it's a slightly sickly world. So it's kind of, it's always slightly too much. Like even mm. attractive people are kind of horrible. You know what I mean? That's, and that's of course about noir. That's about the vibe. Yeah. But then it is sad, you know, when you, you only get those kinds of different representations in, so oh, yeah, yeah. like a, a fun kind of Nimona kind of style where it's all lighthearted and you want to see that representation in, in the more mainstream, serious kind of I, pieces. I still need to read, like, uh, I, I know Jodie, Jodie Hauser, who writes uh, Faith. Do you know Faith? No. Based the book by Valiant, and it's basically about a plus-size superheroine. Oh. Uh, yeah, and it's like, it's just been nominated for an Eisner today. And it's like, that's, that's kind of, I've been meaning to read it for a long time. Cause I said, I, I know Jody. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but um, I haven't. And you know, it's, it's, it's always the nominate, so it must be good. <laughs> it must be. No, no, it must be, you know, so that's only sarcastic. Actually, <laughs> I talked to my wife earlier about this today and she was, yeah, I do, I do just sound sarcastic when I say things like that, but no, no, it's like, I've heard really good things about it, but that'd be a really interesting example of like, I, an explicitly heroic, like, plus-size lead in a superhero comic. You know, that's really unusual. There's not nearly enough of that. That is definitely going on my TV read. Yeah. Shall we both just go and read it? Then <laughs> download it now and read it. <laughs> oh, it's a bit late for me. It's bedtime. <laughs> uh, is that enough? I've sort that of is wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I've realised I haven't said any characters, which is really rubbish. That's all right. <laughs> When I said that, I said this to like Jamie and Katie, who were like, obviously Jamie's Jamie and Katie is like uh, Jamie's. A, I can't, I can't think of any character in the entire world. And it just came and just say all your characters. <laughs> it's like, no, even I'm not that egotistical. I, I can't do that. <laughs> oh well. Um, all right. So just to uh, maybe wrap things up, uh, would you like to just give uh, our listeners a little pitch for um, WickDiv or any of your other current projects that you think that they should go out and read? Okay, let's do the WickDiv pitch. You can see my brain switching to pitch mode. <laughs> it's basically about gods as pop stars and pop stars as gods. Every 90 years, uh, 12 gods incarnate in the bodies of young people. They're loved. They're, they're hated. They perform for adoring crowds. They perform secretive miracles. In two years, they are all dead. 
the story basically happens in 2014 and follows the um, incarnations, the present incarnation of these gods living in that brief Mayfly existence. Uh, and we are fundamentally following Laura, who is basically a fangirl of the gods and kind of wants in on the world. And she eventually gets it, for better or for worse. Um, it's a book about its themes of art and death. You know, the two years is about... Um, it's a way to magnify the shortness of human existence. And it's like, you know, whether it's two years or 10 years or 70 years, uh, life is fundamentally finite. You know, it, it, it's there and it's gone. In which case, why do we spend it being in doing anything? Well, specifically to me, why do you spend it being an artist? So the idea, that's all right, the core of the book. These characters of, you know, are the demiurgic power of creation for two years. And they all respond to this, this doom in their own way. And it's my way of talking about art and death, basically. And there's fighting and kissing. There's not as much. I always say there's kissing. There's there's more kissing off camera than on camera. To be honest, it's like oh, it's a bit more like human woe. So it's it's a bit more of um, an affair to remember and a little leg kick up, rather than uh, you know as the camera pans away. <laughs> it's a bit like it's always like it's like it's always like sex scenes take too take a lot of panels in comics, and it's like and abstractly. You, you've got to have a sex scene that justifies and tells people stuff. Yeah. So it's like I often allude to stuff more. I mean, um, oh, the other thing, it's a book about problematic people doing problematic things. Like, there's a kind of, there's so much the idea, this is a book about how creators fuck up uh, and how they can be both amazing in terms of their work and awful in terms of their choices. <laughs> uh, would you agree with that, Megan? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, that is a good, good way to sell it. And I, yeah, can testify that it's a great series. Love it. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for talking to me and taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. If you enjoyed this episode, please like us on Facebook or subscribe so that you never miss another episode.